Two weeks ago I said at the end of the sermon about witnessing uh, that it's only when we discover uh, for the first time or when we rediscover what it is to adore the Lord Jesus Christ that we will be effective witnesses for him. I said that if our love for Jesus has grown cold, then the way to stir those embers is to focus on his person and his work. And that's what this short sermon series is designed to help us do. Uh, that, that come, let us adore him would be more and more the desire of our hearts. Uh, we started last Lord's Day evening by looking at the Lord Jesus as the wonderful counsellor. Uh, my plan both now, uh, uh, both today and next week, is to work through the remaining three titles of our Lord here in Isaiah 9 verse 6. And then to finish next Lord's Day evening by thinking of the glorious picture of his kingdom uh, contained in verse 7. And so we come today to the amazing promise that this child who would be born would be called Mighty God. And how we need that description of the Lord Jesus in our grief as a congregation today. As a reminder that we don't just ha have a kind, compassionate and sympathetic saviour, though how wonderful it is that we do. And how we need uh, that aspect of our Saviour today. Uh, but we also need reminded that our Saviour is the mighty God. Who has the power to actually do something about the brokenness of this world. Our Saviour is the mighty God who can bring good out of the worst situations. Uh, and so while it crossed my mind briefly on Tuesday... Uh, whether I should preach on something different today in light of Paul's death, surely at this moment we need reminded that our Saviour is mighty God. Surely at this moment our community needs to hear that the one who walked the streets of this broken world and who sat in the homes of sinners was also the mighty God who had the power both to seek and to save the lost. So what does it mean that this baby to be born would be called Mighty God? We have two headings this morning. Uh, and There is a, a brief outline summary on the back of, of your order of service if you want to follow along or, or look back on it later. Two headings. Uh, and the first one, uh, very simply, the child to be born would be God. Uh, the child to be born would be God. Uh, uh, simple to understand, uh, but, but many, many uh, people over the years have tried to resist this. The title Mighty God is a problem, a problem for those who don't believe that God would take on human flesh. And so over the centuries, people have tried to translate this verse in other ways, which might make it mean something less than Mighty God. Uh, others have said, well, it should be understood as a prophecy of someone who would be like God, uh, someone who would be God-like in some sense, who would be like the mighty God, but, but won't actually be God himself because, because God wouldn't walk on earth, would he? 
But the problem with, with, with all those interpretations is that the exact same phrase is used in the next chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 21, where, where it's clearly speaking about God, where we read a remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. And then uh, the rest of the verse describes him as the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And even if it were possible to understand that phrase, mighty God, in a different way, uh, which it isn't, uh, this verse isn't even Isaiah's first prophecy of a child who would be born, who would change everything. Uh, The first prophecy comes two chapters earlier, chapter 7, verse 14. Where Isaiah says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. You know, you know just this week I was with someone and they said, Well, basically, you can't expect us to believe in a, in a virgin birth. It's not possible. But... You know, if there is a God who, who created all, all things, then, then nothing is impossible for him. Uh, so this earlier prophecy, uh, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So whatever way we turn in these chapters of Isaiah, we're being told of a child who will be born who is God himself. And so when Christians worship Jesus, it's not some invented idea that the church leader came up with that actually Jesus, this good man, well, well, maybe he was actually God himself. Because it's all here in the Old Testament. It's all here in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. As someone has put it, the baby born in a manger is not one more legend pointing to the truth. The baby born in a manger is the truth to which all legends point. When he was on earth, Jesus accepted worship as God. In the great climax of John's gospel, Thomas, you remember, doubting Thomas, he, he sees Jesus, he, he feels uh, the, the, the nail marks, uh, and he, he bows down and he says, my Lord and my God. And that's, that's the reason the Jews wanted to kill Jesus in the first place. They, they, they complain in John 5.18 that he was making himself equal with God. But there wasn't any making himself equal with God. He was equal with God and he always had been. And with prophecies like Isaiah's, the Jews should have been waiting for a Messiah who was both God and man. So a a child is born, a son is given, and yet he is mighty God. He had, as we'll see tonight when we think of the title Everlasting Father, he had no beginning. And this is the truth of the incarnation, God taking on human flesh. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, heal the incarnate deity. The Lord Jesus took on flesh. He he added flesh, but he lost nothing. He didn't stop being God, even for a moment. Some of our boys and girls have started doing sums lately. Uh, 
it, it won't be long before they, they catch up on my Mal's ability. Uh, but the, the incarnation was addition rather than subtraction. It was addition, but it was not subtraction. Without stopping being God, the Son of God took to himself a true body into union with himself. Hebrews chapter 1 says that the Lord Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is true this morning. The Lord Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's not some divine watchmaker who, who, who wound up the clock a long, long time ago and, and just left it. The Lord Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And that was true as he lay in the manger. And it was true as he hung on the cross. In the manger on the cross, uh, the Son of God was upholding the universe by the word of his power. And the incarnation is permanent, by the way. I can remember a time when I thought that Jesus taking on human flesh was temporary, like someone putting on a costume but then taking it off again. But it's not. Even uh, that, that, that verse I quoted from, from Acts 17 about Jesus as the judge. God will judge the world by a man, Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. The dust of earth reigns on the throne of heaven today. And so this morning we have a sympathetic high priest on the throne of the universe. People talk about friends in high places. We have a friend in the highest place. And we have one who has stood at the grave of a friend. And one who has wept. Martin Luther, the, the German reformer, he, he once said in another context that the idea of love is just, I, I wish you well, uh, that sort of love. He said it's a, it's a bare, meager, mathematical love which does not become incarnate. Uh, paraphrasing the Apostle Paul, Luther says that love should be a servant and that unless it is in a position of a servant, it is not love. The version of love our culture has is it's what makes me happy. But true love serves. And that's what we have in the incarnation. Love that has taken on the position of a servant. Love that has become incarnate. In A Christmas Carol, uh, the spirits take Scrooge uh, round the streets of London, uh, round streets that he'd never visited before. It, it was an obscure part of the city. Uh, Scrooge, Dickens says, hadn't visited it, though he recognised its situation and its bad repute. The ways, Dickens says, were foul and narrow. The shops and houses wretched, the people half-naked, drunken, slipshod, ugly. Alleys and archways, like so many cesspools, disgorge their offences of smell and dirt and life upon the straggling streets, and the whole quarter reeked with crime, with filth and misery. 
It was all going on in Scrooge's city. And he'd never been near it. But how different the Lord Jesus. He didn't stand aloof. He walked those streets. He sat at their tables. And surely if we know him, we'll do the same. Surely we won't turn up our noses at places in our town. It can be tempting to just want to spend time with respectable people. uh, Perhaps churchgoers, perhaps not, but people without any obvious issues. And yet that would have been like Jesus coming to earth and spending all his time with the Pharisees. Now Jesus didn't look down on the Pharisees. It's possible to become a kind of anti-Pharisee and and look down on those who think their religious deeds will save them. Look at them going to church and they think they're, they're saved just because they go to church. Jesus didn't do that. He accepted an invitation to eat with a Pharisee called Simon. Uh, so boys and girls, there's a Pharisee in the Bible called, called Simon. But on the whole, boys and girls, these Pharisees are, are, are not uh, good characters in the Bible because they didn't believe in Jesus. And they didn't believe in Jesus because they didn't think they needed him. They thought they were healthy and so they didn't think they needed a doctor. No doubt it would be safer for us to spend our days with the respectable in our community. It would mean less heartbreak. But experience from Jesus' day down to our own day tells us that it will mean fewer conversions. John Owen, uh, the great theologian, once said, Much of the glory of heaven may dwell in a simple cottage, and poor persons, even under rags, may be very like unto God. And Owen knew the truth of those words. He was vice-chancellor of Oxford University. He was a close associate of King Charles II. And the king once asked Owen how he who had so much learning could listen to a tinker preach. The tinker being John Bunyan. To which Owen replied, May it please your majesty, had I the tinker's abilities for preaching, I would most gladly relinquish all my learning. Much of the glory of heaven may dwell in a simple cottage or in a rundown flat. May God more and more give us a heart for the least and the lost in our community. The child to be born would be the mighty God. But he didn't count equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he took the form of a servant. Jesus didn't come to earth saying, do you know who I am? Rather, because of who he is, because he was God, he came for his people. He was mighty God, but he he stooped down to dwell among the lowest of the earth. And will we not? Will we not? May God help us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. The child to be born would be mighty God, and yet he abhorred not the virgin's womb or, or our broken world. It would have been humiliation for Jesus to be born in a a palace, uh, never mind uh, born among where the animals are. As 
Christians in the UK, we don't tend to need much excuse to retreat to our Christian ghettos. Yet Jesus did the opposite. He left heaven to live among us. So firstly, this morning, the child to be born would be God. But then secondly, a second of our two points, if he hadn't been God, we could not have been saved. If he hadn't been God, been mighty God, we could not have been saved. This is page five, Donna, page five. Uh, There's a bit in the book Pilgrim's Progress where Hopeful is telling Christian how he got saved. Uh, In Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read it, the the main character is called Christian, but he has different friends, Hopeful uh, uh, and Faithful and so on, and and their names sort of tell you what they're like, good characters and and bad characters. Uh, Hopeful had, had once lived a wild life, but then he began to be convicted of his sin. Uh, the, the things that he was doing were actually wrong. Uh, at first he ignored it, but after a while he couldn't ignore it any longer. Uh, maybe you've experienced that. Something you try and put to the back of your mind, but, but eventually you, you find that, that, that you can't. Uh, and yet even then, his first attempt to do something about it was to do what basically anybody in any religion tries to do, and that, that is to mend his life by, by what he does. He, he thought, well, if, if I don't fix things, I, I'm sure to be damned. But after a while, he, he began to realise, and he gives the illustration, uh, that that would be like a man who owed a shopkeeper £100. Uh, this is a, the 1600s, so this is a, a lot more uh, than £100 today. Uh, but he owed a shopkeeper £100. But from that point on, he decided that he would pay up front for everything he ever bought. But the problem there is that he would still owe the £100. And until that was paid, the shopkeeper would still be within his rights to sue him for it. But at that point, Hopeful's friend, Faithful, told him that there was a man who had never committed any sin. Uh, and that his righteousness, uh, his record of perfect obedience could be put to Hopeful's account. As if Hopeful had lived that righteous, perfect life. Uh, and Hopeful asked, how is it possible that, that another man's righteous life could possibly justify me? Could possibly be counted as mine? And his friend replied that this man was the mighty God and did what he did and died the death that he died, not for himself, but for Christian and for all those who would believe on Jesus. Christianity is not primarily about following someone who set a good example. It is about believing in someone who actually paid the penalty for our sins by his death. And the only way he could have done that was if he was God. Jesus is the sin bearer. But if he hadn't been God, he couldn't have been the sin bearer. Because for human flesh to bear the wrath of God will mean an eternity of suffering for those who don't believe in Jesus. In hell, those who drink the cup of God's wrath will drink that cup for eternity and it will still not be emptied. But Jesus came to this earth because he did not want that to be the case 
for any of you or for anyone else. On the cross, the Lord Jesus drank that cup down to the dregs. And he could only do so because he was the mighty God. That, that cup uh, full to the brim of the punishment that, that, that all of us deserve to pay. The Lord Jesus drank it on the cross and he drank every last drop. But if he, if he hadn't been God, if he had just been a man, his human nature couldn't have borne it. He couldn't have, 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 have in an eternity, he couldn't have drained his own cup, never mind a cup for, 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 for millions and billions of people. Boys and girls, maybe you've had false teachers come to your door. We've had it over the years. And those false teachers sometimes will say that they're Christians, but they don't worship Jesus. And if you ask them about Jesus, they'll try and tell you that he isn't God. They'll probably not say it up front. They'll not say, hello, we, we don't believe Jesus is God. But, but if you ask them, is Jesus God? They'll say, no, no, he's not. They'll say, we, we respect him, but we don't worship him. He, he's not God. But if Jesus isn't God, no one could be saved. If Jesus isn't God, no one could go to heaven. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he could only do so because he was and is God. As John Newton, a former slave trader, author of Amazing Grace, put it, only the mighty God could be a suitable shepherd to lead millions of weak and helpless creatures to glory. Only the mighty God could be the shepherd who could lead millions of weak and helpless creatures to glory. And so though we come burdened today, we come with the great burden of sin having been lifted off our back. And so we can say that Jesus' words are true. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And it's light because he bears the weight. In Psalm 68, just after prophesying about Christ's ascension, it says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. And he daily bears us up because we need borne up every day, don't we? I'm not sure about you, and I realise some of us knew Paul better than others. I realise he... He... He wasn't always wanting to, to get into group situations and so on. So, so not everyone had the opportunity to know him in the same way. Uh, but I, uh, and I'm sure others too, have felt daily waves of grief since Tuesday. Uh, a, a raw sense of sudden loss. Uh, a disbelief even that it's not true, that, that we'll not see him again in this world. But I can testify that I've known the Saviour who daily bears our burdens. And we know that one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. On Tuesday afternoon, I shared with Paul's parents the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And Jesus wept because he was man. In the face of death, in the face of the impact of sin on the world that he had created, and as his friends Mary and Martha weep, Jesus wept with those who weep. 
But because he is mighty God, he didn't just weep. He did something about it. He raised Lazarus from the dead as a foretaste of what he will one day do for all his friends. And because he is the mighty God, he is more powerful than our sin. We may make bad decisions, sinful choices, choices that are perhaps even fatal to our earthly lives. Our last act on this earth may be sinful, but if we are in the hand of the mighty God, he is not going to let us go. I was at a funeral yesterday of a godly old minister. As funerals go, it was a pretty joyful occasion. He knew where he was going. He was ready to go. He planned, planned the funeral out, pretty much written the sermon. As funerals go, it was pretty joyful. It was very unlike another funeral I was at 10 years ago. Because that funeral was a funeral of someone who had taken their own life. And it was a horrible time. And yet no one doubted who knew her that she was a believer. Her final act was a sinful one. As her mind unraveled, it was an act which will have long painful consequences on her family, on on the one who found her, on others, uh, perhaps generational consequences. Uh, At the funeral we were sternly and rightly warned not to follow her example. And yet because she was in the hand of the mighty God, she could not sin her way out of his grace. What will define her for all eternity, I believe, will not be her final action, but the fact that she had faith in Jesus Christ. And I'll be the same for any of us. You know, any of us could shout at, shout at someone in our, in our house, walk out the door and be hit by a car, and, and our last action is, is sinful, but it won't define us for eternity. It's the same for any genuine believer. What will define us is whether we had our faith in Jesus Christ or not. and yet sin is always destructive it always brings misery we can't just say well you know if if god is stronger than sin we'll just go out we'll just go out and sin because sin always brings misery satan only ever comes to steal and kill and destroy and if we as christians go on in sin there will always be consequences It will hurt us and it will hurt those around us. It will mar our our witness to Christ, our claim that he does change lives. It will give ammunition to the enemy and to unbelievers. But the fact that the Lord Jesus is mighty God means that he gives us the ability to fight sin here and now. Sometimes we think, I'm not able to resist this sin. It's pointless trying to fight it. But if we are believers, that is not true. Those are the lies of the devil because the mighty God is on our side. We know, says the Apostle Paul, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We may not feel like our old self has been crucified but we know that it has. And we need to live in light of that knowledge. 
And so the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider yourself dead to sin. I hope it isn't too soon to use this illustration, but Paul had made the mistake the other week of giving the Mormons his phone number. He'd been on the phone when they answered his door, and so he couldn't deny that he had his phone. And Paul was wondering, well, well, how am I going to get out of this? Well, Paul is now beyond their reach. Those two false prophets might come knocking, they, they might try and phone him, but he is free from them. And that's how we are to think of ourselves when sin and temptation come knocking. We are dead to it and we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. The reason the Son of God appeared, John tells us, was to destroy the work of the devil. And when we melt in the face of temptation, we're saying by our actions that the mighty God isn't actually strong enough to destroy the works of the devil. We're calling into doubt the ability of the Lord Jesus to bind the strong man. But actually the mighty God is able to bind the strong man. He is able to lead us through life and he will bring us safely home. He will bring us safely home. Perhaps you are full of doubt and uncertainty whether you will make it to heaven. Yet if your faith is in Jesus, then your getting to heaven doesn't depend on you. Rather, it depends on the mighty God. And if you are part of Christ's body, then you will go where he goes. That is a Christian message. It's not, well, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. We're all bad people. The Christian message is Jesus goes to heaven He returns to heaven, he lives forever in heaven and all those who are joined on to him are in heaven because he's in heaven and they're joined on to him. And we we are joined on to him by faith. If the gates of heaven will be lifted up so that the king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle can enter in. If those gates will be opened for him, well then, it is certain that you will enter in too if you're joined on to him. In, in movies, uh, people often sneak into a secure compound by stowing away in a lorry or, or clinging on to the bottom of a car. Uh, and the gates open because the car is legitimate, the driver is legitimate, uh, and the person sneaking in underneath the car isn't detected. Well, well there, there will be no sneaking into heaven But we will get into heaven because those gates will open for Jesus and he's holding on to us. Those gates did open for Jesus as he ascended back up into heaven. And if we are joined onto him, our entrance into heaven is is absolutely certain. It's as good as if it's already happened. In a very real sense, when he ascended, all who would ever believe in him ascended with him. We are, uh, the Apostle Paul says, at this very moment, seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The gates will open for Jesus and he is holding on to us and he will not drop us at the finish. 
Sometimes people who have served God faithfully for decades don't have a peaceful death. We often hear about those who die with great confidence. We don't hear so much about others, but there are some. They may, be, they may have had a, had a confident faith throughout their life and yet be racked with doubt in their final days with absolutely no confidence about where they're going. But their getting to heaven doesn't depend on how confident they are. Your getting to heaven doesn't depend on how confident you are. Rather, it depends on the fact that the mighty God is holding on to you. And if he's holding on to you, he's not going to let go. If Jesus was holding on to our brother Paul, and I believe he was, then whatever happened at the start of this week, our brother made it through those gates because the mighty God was holding on to him. Our Saviour is the mighty God. If he wasn't, we couldn't be saved. But because he is, we can't be lost if we're truly his. Your salvation doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus Christ, who is the mighty God. Hallelujah and Amen. Well, let's now sing about these, these gates we've been thinking about. These gates which open to let in the King of glory. Uh, we, we sing about it from Psalm 24. Psalm number 24, the last three verses, page 44. Psalm 24, 3 through 5. Uh, and notice the word uh, mighty in the last line of verse 4. Our Saviour is the only one to who, whom these gates will open because he is the mighty God. If he wasn't, we couldn't be saved. But because he is... If he's holding on to us, we cannot be lost. If he's holding on to us, we cannot be lost. Psalm 24, 3 to the end, uh, on page 44, we'll stand to sing praise. <laughs> 